This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Hal Williamson and his wife Sharon Eakes. With Sharon's help, Hal wrote the book Liberating Greatness, The Whole Brain Guide to an Extraordinary Life. The book starts with Hal describing his life story that exemplifies how one can be liberated to do great things. I started the interview by asking Hal to share that story with our listeners. My life began on a small farm in New Jersey. Uh, A life uh, on the farm was a good life. Uh, My life changed rather dramatically when... uh, not really dramatically, but initially when I was about seven and was at the dinner table one evening and my father uh, was about to uh, discipline my two older brothers who had apparently done some mischief out there in the world. And my father had received the call uh, advising him of their mischief and they knew they were going to you know, catch it when uh, they came to the evening meal. I do recall that at the end of the meal, he, he paused, his, his face was red, his voice shook, and he pointed at my two older brothers, and he says, I want you to remember, don't you ever forget, no matter where you go in this world, you are a Williamson, and don't you ever forget it. My two older brothers both nodded their head, and I hadn't the faintest idea what they were talking about. How could you ever forget you are a Williamson? But I did begin to sense that it must mean to be a Williamson meant that you should be maybe exceptional or or above average. At that tender age, I was aware that I was not even average. Uh, And how did I know then? We had reading groups groups in school, and there was an upper fast reading group, uh, the Redbirds, and then there was the the lower reading group, the Bluebirds. And guess what? I was in the Bluebird. Mm-hmm. And immediately I thought then at the age seven that I wasn't living up to being a Williamson. Now, that's not what my father said at all, but that's what I believed. Mm-hmm. I often say the next three years of my life were, were the most tragic that one could imagine because uh, or a few years following that, I was standing on the front porch, of the, not the porch, but on the porch of the kitchen when the house exploded and it was a gas explosion and... Uh, I was blown from the house, and by the time I made it back up onto the porch, I could see that my brother, my next brother, Malcolm, a year or two older than me, had been caught in a liquid propane stream coming from the stove, and and I watched my brother burn to death. It was was really terrible. I remember them bringing his black body out of the building and uh, just standing there screaming. It it was a horrible experience for me. Now, it was about... Two years later, uh, and I had uh, I was in school, and it was in the spring, uh, and uh, a neighbor came to the school, and for some reason they wanted me to go with them, and I was taken home in the middle of the morning. 
When I got there, um, the neighbor told me that my father had an illness. I knew he was sick, and the illness had a name, and it was called cancer. I remember that day they took me to my father's bedside, and, and that day I and that day I watched my father die. Mm. It was terrible. It took seven hours. I remember, you know, him last gasps and dying, and then leaving the farmhouse. Uh, just absolutely, it was just the most horrible experience one could imagine. It wasn't like the movies, you know. Just mm. didn't close his eye and have it over. And I do remember walking and walking out through the fields and getting to where I was so far from the house you could barely see it. And I can remember standing there, you know, kicking the freshly plowed earth. It was May 19th. It was my birthday. Mm. And it was, it was just terrible. I felt so alone. It was unbelievable. And that's the way that day ended. Another life was about to begin. Nothing really major happened other than we were struggling economically without my father bringing an income in. This was in 1945. And finally, my uh, I guess the most next major thing happened when I was in the eighth grade. The principal came to our, our, our home. Now, we lived on a farm in the country, and uh, it's not common for the principal to come to the house. He'd come to talk to my mother, the widow Williamson, and when he talked to her, I didn't learn until many years later that the subject he was, came to talk to her about was me. Hmm. What he told her was that I was not to graduate from um, uh, elementary school to go on to high school. And my mother just couldn't believe it. She said, not my Harold. You know, what do you mean? And he said, well, uh, he, we've tested him, and the test revealed that your son is, in fact, retarded. Hmm. My mother said, well, just that just can't be. And finally, uh, what she finally decided to do, she would finally sold the farm and had some money and decided to put me in a small private school nearby. It was an exclusive school, small classes, four, five, six kids. And when I got there... Even as small as those classes were, I was doing very poorly. And uh, as you might expect, the prep school uh, tested me and confirmed the decision of the elementary school principal that I was, in fact, retarded. Hmm. Uh, the word leaked out uh, in, among the kids in the school that I was retarded. I can tell you when you're about 13 years old or 14 years old and you're found to be retarded and everybody in the school knows that you're the dumbest kid in the school, uh, that is an enormous burden. Mm. I actually hated going to school. Sure. It, I just hated it. There was nothing worse that could be. But I had to go. But there was only one bright spot in every day, and that was when I went to math class. And my teacher, Mr. Blake, uh, now deceased, was... Um, he was always kind to me and uh, made me feel comfortable, even though I didn't do very well in this class. Uh, it wasn't until many years later I, I figured it out that uh, he was the coach, and he wanted me out on the field playing, you know, carrying the ball for him, running in track, wrestling, and things of that nature. And uh, maybe that had more to do with his kindness than anything else. In the fall of my sophomore year, I... Uh, went to uh, one of the parent-teacher kind of uh, functions at the school. I had gone alone that night. My object was to meet Mr. Blake and talk with him. I did that that evening. We were on the front stoop of the, of the school, and, uh, and we were having a conversation. A group of parents came by, motioned to Mr. Blake to talk to them, and I did. I literally turned my back, and he turned his back on me. He began to talk to those parents. 
Now, I didn't leave. I just didn't have any place to go. I was waiting him to finish, and I was going to continue my conversation with him. But that didn't happen. As I stood there, I could hear that he was talking to those parents about me. He didn't know I was right there behind him. And I heard him say something that went along the following lines. He said, you know that kid, Hal? Harold, they call me. He's a nice boy. Too bad he doesn't have it. Too bad he'll never amount to anything. Hmm. And when he said that, uh, I burst into tears. Sure. Mr. Blake had become the father I didn't have in my life. I remember I fled out into the night, and I just spent the next two hours walking the streets of that small city, literally weeping, until I really couldn't cry anymore. All I could do is walk and sob, and I had to stay out because uh, I told my mother I'd be gone for a couple of hours, washed my face at a service station, went home, and uh, and so it seemed to end. That was uh, in the fall of my sophomore year. You might imagine I didn't do very well in the balance of that year. And in the spring of my sophomore year, my mother took me aside and said, You know, son, uh, it's very expensive to send you to this school, and you're not doing much with this opportunity. I had no idea that we were, uh, you know, really not very well-to-do, in fact, poor. But that, she said, "You, if you can't turn your grades around in the next uh six or eight weeks, uh, you'll have to go to public school, you know, with your sister. Well, that scared me to death. I was in a school that had only four, five, six kids in the class. I'd come from an elementary school with 12 kids in my graduating class. And, uh, and the idea of going to a public high school with thousands of kids absolutely scared me to death. I remembered I appeared in church on Sunday morning, not because I was spiritually inclined, but in our home, everyone went to church on Sunday morning. And I was sitting in church, biding my time, waiting to get out. When I remembered that during the middle of the the morning service, uh, I heard a a voice in the pulpit. It was a different voice than our pastor's. And I realized we had a visiting pastor who was going to provide the sermon. I remembered I looked at the, the bulletin, we called it, in our church, and the sermon was a single word, and the word was excellence. I sat up. I never listened to sermons. That's not what I was there for. I was, in fact, that day I was 16 years old, and I was anxious to get out and do what you do when you're 16-year-old, and I didn't. And as I sat there, the man began talking about excellence, and he made a point that he made again and again as the sermon unfolded. And the point simply was that he said that the gap between average and excellence is small. The gap is small. And really, there wasn't anything you couldn't do or be if you wanted it badly enough and were willing to work hard enough for it. In fact, he went on to to share with the the, uh, congregation, you know, countless men and women down through the ages, average men and women who'd stepped across that gap and snatched a measure of excellence. Well, let me tell you, when I left church that morning, my spirits soared because, you see, I felt I'd found the philosophy I could put to work in my life. Uh, I knew I was below average, and with a big effort, I thought to myself, why can't I be average? And with an extraordinary effort, maybe maybe I could step across that gap and snatch a measure of excellence. Well, um, I threw myself on Monday morning, I threw myself into my studies, and two years later, two years later, I graduated at the top of my class. Wow. Now, there are those who often hear that story and say, that must have been wonderful. You certainly must have felt adequate now. Well, I can tell you that uh, I didn't feel adequate. No one really knew the truth about me. Because, you see, after that church service, I spent nearly every day for the next two years getting up very early in the morning to deliver newspapers, 
studying for hours, studying most Saturdays and Sundays. And if you ever knew the truth, all I ever did was study. And the truth of the matter is, I must be pretty stupid to have taken so much time to, to study to get those grades. So I kept that a secret. Mm. The uh, I went on to, to the University of Wisconsin. I enrolled in engineering school, and uh, I graduated from high school with being at the top of my class and gained my admission to the University of Wisconsin uh, on the basis of my ranking class, not my SAT exams. I didn't even send those scores to them because they seemed so poor. Mm-hmm. Well, I, at the end of the, at the beginning of the first day, they said, you know, we don't have any math tests to put you in the math program here. And so I sat down to take math exams my first day there before school started. And on the first, end of the first week of class, I got a call to go to an advisor's office. And when I got there, he revealed to me the scores on my test. And they said, you rank below the lowest 24th percentile of students graduating from high schools in the United States with respect to your ability to learn math. He said, you'll never make it in engineering school with dropout. <laughs> Change colleges. And, you know, I, I just didn't even look at him. I waited till he finished saying what he had to say. I got up and I left <laughs> because uh, he didn't know what I knew. There wasn't anything <laughs> I couldn't do or be if I wanted it badly enough, but <laughs> willing to work hard enough for it. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you, I got A's and B's in math, and uh, while I didn't graduate at the top of my class, I finished engineering school and from there went on to law school. And really, I think those are the critical phases of my life's development. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most significant event and positive event in my life was that uh, 20 minutes or half an hour in church when I was 16, uh, and I, I got what I sensed was the key to success. Mm. The one thing I, I didn't mention and rarely mention was is that that wasn't all that the pastor had said that Sunday morning. It wasn't until many years later I remembered when reflecting that uh, really what he said in full that morning was, with God's help, there isn't anything you can do or be if you want it badly enough, willing to work hard enough for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I believed that I had done it. Mm-hmm. I believed that I had done it. And in reality, the tasks and tests I faced in the balance of my life were ultimately to reveal that uh, when I turned to God, then then I really could get out of almost any jam that I was in. Mm. So that's the early part of my life and set the scene for the balance of my life. Mm. Thank you, Hal. Uh, let's now hear from Sharon. And Sharon, if you could tell me where you grew up and what was it like growing up? Well, I grew up in Stockton, California. And um, I grew up in a, a a very delightful family. I was the I had two grandparents who were ministers. The story that I grew up knowing was that preachers' kids were a little bit naughty. Mm. Uh, <laughs> they somehow felt like they had to rebel slightly. Mm. But anyway, I I had a I have two brothers and a sister, and um, I had a kind of storybook childhood really because I um, I had enormous support from my parents. And um, I was always a good student, and I had a lot of fun, and, you know, um, I liked learning a lot. Mm. And I was quite um, involved in my church group from the time I was probably about 10 until I graduated from high... No, before I graduated, from until I was about 17, I guess. No, maybe it was close to graduating from high school. And then I'll tell you a thing that happened that has a, a big impact on the rest of my life, which is that 
a new minister came to our church. I was a Methodist, and um, I really liked this minister a lot. He was thoughtful, and after he did the sermon, he invited anybody who wanted to discuss it to come down and talk with him. And if you had questions or different points of view, he welcomed them, and he treated kids like me as if we um, were worthy of, of thought. He was, you know, so it, it was a very positive experience. And then he got accused of, uh, by the House Un-American Activities Committee of being a communist. Mm. And so he was called to defend himself and testify. And it just tore the congregation apart. Um, about half the congregation thought we should just get rid of him, that mm. if he was even possibly a communist, we should not trust him and, and get him out. And he invited the whole congregation to come and hear his side of the story and, and hear uh, what the allegations were. And actually, after he was, uh, went and testified twice, he was, um, you know, taken off the list. But it tore the congregation apart. And people within that had been friendly with each other stopped talking to each other. Hmm. And for me, it was a real crisis because I thought that it didn't, I didn't experience it as the way I would think Christians would deal with this kind of difficulty, mm -hmm. that people really didn't talk to each other. And I simply left the church at that point. So that was, um, you know, in terms of this being a Baha'i thing, it was, right. it's, it's interesting because I, um, I, it's funny because I missed it in a sense, but mm. I, didn't, I didn't want to go back, I guess. And I went on to the, the next thing I found in my life that in some way, uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't stop being a seeker, I would say. And I, I, in fact, if anything, I got probably closer to being Buddhist than anything. I did a lot of reading about uh, Buddhism. And when I, I've, after I went to graduate school and, and so forth, I got into the treatment of alcoholics, which was a field that led me to meet Hal eventually. Mm -hmm. um, but interestingly, the 12 steps of AA appealed to me a whole lot and seemed to provide guidance um, that was both spiritual and practical, I thought, and they sort of served as my religion for many years. Mm -hmm. So uh, I worked as a drug and alcohol uh, administrator of a drug and alcohol program for 25 years. I had my last drink of alcohol uh, 36 years ago, mm -hmm. and that's where I very early on uh, met Sharon uh, uh, across, you know, conference tables where I was then sober and uh, uh, meeting at uh, joint gatherings where people from her treatment facility were, and I was volunteering. And uh, so that's how we came to know each other uh, many, many years earlier. Right. Hal, you did well after college. After yes, exceptionally well, as a matter of fact. Uh, needless to say, uh, I had a whole set of beliefs about... Uh, you know, good, better, best, never let it rest until the good is better and the better best. <laughs> and that uh, I, I, I do think that uh, that I had an enormous, an enormous sense that having felt so inadequate for so long and had kept it a secret from people, that I had to accomplish not at just the normal level. A, uh, I had to be a, uh, an overachiever. And the definition of an overachiever is a person who performs at a level that's beyond what his intellect uh, would normally you would normally expect. And I did. I, I performance and and looking good 
and uh, becoming well-to-do and having all the accoutrements of being well-to-do and and having enormous stature and what have you became the most important things in my life. It was uh, I wanted to be looked up to. I I maybe at one level, well, I never thought of it consciously. When I was acting that way, I was being a Williamson. Mm. And you describe how you didn't just stop at being an engineer. You went on to go to law school and then I got an MBA. Yes. All the, I think you know more of those things had to do because it looked so good on paper. Because if my name was in a list of people, and you got down to me, you get BSME, uh, MBA, mm-hmm. and uh, and no, an LL, an LLB they had back then, mm-hmm. or Dural Doctor today, and uh, and then my MBA. So you know, you, I would really stick out, you know, on any listing of people with accomplishments. Yeah. But but to, to just say what you did. Uh, end up doing for most of your life work, it, it was being a patent attorney. That's right. Which was also allowed you to get into the, the world of creativity and how people invent and how they use their minds in that sort of uh, innovative way, which did fascinate you. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then you had a traumatic experience, Hal. Well, the traumatic experience uh, uh, happened uh, near... Oh, First, let me say, I, I became absolutely fascinated with mind work, and uh, over a period of years, I actually created a curriculum, a program called Pathway to Greatness. It was a, it was a way to study, learn how the brain worked, and then how with your mind to accomplish remarkable things in your life. If you only knew how your brain actually worked, you could use it, you know, in an optimum way. Uh, I had been asked by the, the CEO of my company to stop being the chief patent counsel and teach this to the people who worked at the company, uh, take them through my course called Pathway to Greatness. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had gone through it himself and was, seemed to be taken by it. And so I then began a, kind of an odyssey of years teaching uh, people all over the United States that work for the company uh, this course on how to think effectively. And um, it was so in 50, no, 89, I guess it was, that oh, I'm losing track of the years. No, it actually was in the early 90s, and uh, my wife had retired and had and joined me on the road of teaching. She was supporting me, and uh, and it was a it was a good it was a good wonderful life. Mm-hmm. I do recall it was home the date actually October 19th. We were in Florida, a beautiful day. We always took a walk in the morning, and we headed out early in the morning, about six, and got about a half mile from the motel, and we're about and crossed a, a boulevard that ran east and west. So we were heading south, crossing the boulevard. Uh, there was a large island in the middle, filled with palm trees. And I remember we got to the edge of that, about to take over the last two lanes to get to the other side. And I looked to my right, and I, there was a, an overpass that ran north and south. And coming off of the uh, uh, the interstate, there was a ramp that headed down to heading north, headed uh, down up to where there was a traffic light. When I looked to my right, there was not a car between me and the light, and uh, but I did notice a car coming very quickly down the ramp. The light was red, and so I reached back and took hold of Trudy's hand. That is my wife, and uh, and my plan was to lead her to safety across the way. However, um, they tell me 
that I had my foot on the curb, pretty slightly behind me, when that car coming down the hill apparently cleared the light, the traffic light, headed east into the rising morning sun, was blinded by the sun. He never saw us. He hit us both. And uh, it killed Trudy instantly, and it broke my neck and broke my legs, and um, it was not a good morning. Mm. And uh, and for, for me, and I remember when um, I realized that I was on my back and people were screaming, don't move, your neck is broken. I remember my eyes filling with blood, and I and I... And I reached back to my left hand, and Trudy wasn't there, and I knew I'd lost her. Mm-hmm. I do recall it was an unbelievably agonizing feeling to know that truth, and I, uh, and I, I began to weep. Uh, and then the weeping turned in a way because I knew with Trudy gone, uh, she would not have to end her life the way we thought she would, and that was because she was dying of cancer. Mm. And she was killed instantly. She was spared, but now I was alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was not a good morning. Yeah. How did you and Sharon meet? Well, <laughs> that's kind of a neat story. Uh, I had a great de- desire to uh, to see whether this material that I had perfected over the years would be suitable for uh, use by recovering alcoholics in treatment centers. And so I contacted the place where Sharon worked, uh, the head man, a man by the name of Dr. Tversky. He was a rabbi. And he said, well, you'll have to talk to Sharon. Well, I knew Sharon when she was, uh, you know, 25 years early, was a, a therapist and just beginning at the job, and now she was vice president and a therapy and virtually ran the place. And she told me that if I did a whole bunch of things that allow her her um, therapist to get credit for this, you know, of continuing education credit, uh, she would uh, let me come for a few days and put on my program. And that was the that was the. The time that I came, and uh, there was a huge number of, uh, of patients present, and and all her therapists and Sharon was there. Mm. Now, if there is the next part of the story is uh, I, I whether you want me to tell it or not, I will tell because it means so much to me. At the end of this uh, particular gathering, uh, I uh, I promised to send her a book that I thought she would like, and that uh, she promised to send me a paper on. Uh, uh, chaos theory. In my mind, I knew that being a woman, you know, she could never really write a very good paper on chaos theory, what with all the advanced math and everything else. I could, but probably not her. <laughs> well, I'll jump ahead just let you know, I did get the, 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 the essay that she'd written, and I soon discovered she knew far more about <laughs> chaos theory than I did, so I quickly ran out and got all the books she had cited so I could be as smart as she was. <laughs> but that's not the purpose of this part of the story. I uh, came home from from Pittsburgh to uh, Rockford, Illinois, where I was living at the time, and uh, the following night I went to bed, and apparently I overslept in the morning. I normally rise at 6 in the morning, and I... Uh, and it was 8 o'clock, I was wakened by the sound of my oldest daughter, who was working with me now, uh, and I came down in my pajamas, and I said to her, hey, Sue, I said, you know, I had a, a weird dream. It really just ended. And she said, well, tell me about it. And I said, well, it is, you'll never believe it. Well, she said, well, go ahead, tell me. I said, well, in this dream, I was in a strange city, 
city I didn't recognize. I found myself with people moving along a sidewalk towards an intersection, and I um, and we got the intersection. I believe there was a, a signal that said don't walk, and so we waited curbside. The light changed. I started heading across the street, eyes down, uh, looking at the feet of the people coming at me because it was a large group. And I didn't want to bump into somebody. But as I began to, the, the groups began to merge in the middle of the street. The person who was in front of me, I moved to my left, and then they moved to the left, and then I moved to the right, and they moved. <laughs> it, and I looked up, and we came almost nose to nose, and it was Sharon. Mm. And uh, she smiled, and uh, and then the only words spoken in the in the uh, in this dream were the following. I looked at her. I was surprised, and I said to her, "Shall we dance?" Hmm. She smiled and nodded her head. I lifted my left arm hand and held it up in the in the pose of about to take a waltz. She put her fingertips in mine. I took her by the elbow. We stumbled a little bit, and soon we began to glide and dance, you know, a waltz. The music came on. It was beautiful, and we danced swoopingly up a curved street to the crest of the hill where the music stopped. We looked out over a vast horizon, a beautiful city, and with no more music, uh, I, I kind of backed away. I bowed at the waist. I learned how to do that in dancing school, <laughs> and she did a deep curtsy, and the dream ended. Hmm. Now, my daughter said, you should write Sharon and tell her about that dream. I said, is she out of your mind? You know, <laughs> uh, this is this doesn't make any sense. But uh, guess what I did? I, I wrote, described the dream and put it in a card in the book I was to send to her. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess the rest of the story has to be told by Sharon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next part of the story is that I got this marvelous dream uh, and the book, and I happened to be having lunch with a friend of mine the very next day who was um, a psychoanalyst who sort of specialized in dreams. And so I, I took this card and I said, listen to this dream and tell me what you think. So he listened and he was, he was very cute. He, he listened for a while and then he stopped and he paused and he said, well, you aren't my patient, so I have to tell you that is the finest love letter I've ever heard. Go oh, wow. for it. <laughs> So thus started a correspondence. Hal was in Illinois, and I was in in, uh, Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. and we just started writing to each other, which turned out to be a wonderful thing, because each of us, you know, had a lot. I was a widow also, Mm -hmm. and so we had time to just write and think, and we we didn't have... um, sort of uh, anything in mind of where this was going. We were just writing, and we had a lot of interests in common, and we both had done a great deal of thinking about what what our lives really meant and what the purpose was, and so we shared all of that. And then Hal had an occasion... I, I should say that okay. by December, this, we met in October, and by December, I was getting pretty tired of writing a letter. It took four days to get to her and four days for her to respond, and so I did the outrageous thing. In January, I sent her a, a fax machine because I couldn't type and I couldn't use the computer I had to communicate with her. And I didn't have email yet, so so I got a fax machine, and I was a little annoyed because I had to put a extra line in my house, but I did it. <laughs> and then we faxed back and forth for a while, mm-hmm. which is, is pretty funny. My, my brother-in-law said we were infatuated. <laughs> pretty, pretty bad, huh? But then um, Hal was invited to give another talk. I guess he came and gave another talk here in December, and then he came back in 
I guess it was February. And by then we had really exchanged a lot of information. And the only question was, was there really good chemistry between us? And if we were in person, did we like each other as much as we liked each other on paper at this mm, point? Sure. And in the interim, I'd had major surgery at the Mayo right. Clinic involving a kidney problem, and uh, mm. and the uh, I, I was I was really in not very very good shape. Not very good shape, right? Mm. But it was funny because he was he came to give this talk, and within uh, a very short time of our being together, he proposed to me, and to my amazement, I accepted, <laughs> and we figured out. After the fact that we had only spent eight and hour eight and a half hours in each other's actual company when we agreed to get married, wow. <laughs> sounds wow. like a Baha'i marriage to me. <laughs> 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 yeah, but you had known each other before the courtship, yeah. right? Well, yeah. we had known each other many years ago. Yeah, oh, not well, okay. but we did yeah. know each other. Yeah, that's yeah. sweet, sweet yeah. story. And you know. I mean, we were very suitable. We kind of yeah. knew that. Um, yeah. We had sort of figured out that we had so much in common and had so many shared values that we yeah. were quite suitable. That's sweet. So isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah. it was good. And that's 11 years ago, almost yeah. exactly, that we got married. We have between us, Hal has four children. Mm-hmm. I have two children. So we have six children and 13 grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Oh, so wow. That's terrific. We have lots of um, family. That's great. I really, really liked the way you all presented the working of the brain in the book. Mm-hmm. It, it really allowed me to really appreciate the magnificence of the brain and also, from a layman's point of view, understand what's going on in my head from all your sensory antenna that's out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. I really, really, I, I learned a lot. and. One thing, we haven't mentioned the name of that book. It's called Liberating Greatness. Uh, you know, one story that you describe in here, uh, and it's a story from Hal's life, about how the RAS works. Now, I, remind me, what does the acronym RAS mean? R-A-S. Oh, yes. oh, yeah. oh yeah. the RAS. Yeah. Oh, you pronounce called the it reticular it? alerting system. Yeah. Apparently, in the base of the human brain, uh, in, what, in the area really normally referred to in biology books as the reptilian brain, the brain of a reptile. It's basically, if you were to look at it, you know, taken out of the brain, it is the brain stem. Within the brain stem, apparently, uh, uh, evolution has caused it to d- develop permanent neural circuits. These are circuits that store information, and this information, because it is uh, genetically implanted in that part of your brain, actually is transmitted from generation to generation, you know, it passed on. And it's the part of the brain, of the animal's brain, that responds to outside sensory inputs that tell them that there's danger uh, about uh, many people are not aware that the reason why rabbits and animals like that they feel freeze is because the shadow of a hawk falls across them, and they're, that part of the brain instantly recognizes danger, freeze or run. You might add that a crow flies over, the shadow of a crow doesn't bother the animal. It is that specific, I mean, the way that part of the brain is formed. We've discovered over the years that that part of the brain can actually be uh, conditioned to pick up information of value as you move through the world. And that requires that you actually use a portion of your cortex, that's the wrinkle part of your brain, mm-hmm. in a way that holds images there 
and those images eventually impact and influence the reticular alerting system, the RAS, so that if you consistently hold these images in a way that's uh, described in the book, as you move through the world, you'll pick up information. It comes right through all of your senses. Uh, you don't have to be thinking about it. All of a sudden, if it's there in your environment, you will pick it up instantly. That can be proved to be an enormously beneficial thing if you're trying to accomplish things in your life and the things of importance around you that you would normally miss but would certainly find instantly if you had conditioned that part of your brain. And you can do that in not too many weeks. Mm. And that's described in the book. And that's described in the book. Mm -hmm. Now, you... You provided a couple of incredible stories in which, in one case, your RAS was triggered subconsciously, and in another where Trudy's RAS was triggered sort of subconsciously. Could you describe those two stories? I'm trying to pull that out of my yeah, out, out of, of the your, middle of the book. Probably it, the story how is, yes, is the one about you're at you're sleeping at the end of the bed. Yeah, the story of Amy. Oh yes, yes. This was the yes. It's the story. I arrived home from work, and during the day, Trudy had told me that my youngest daughter, Amy, who was 18 months old at the time, I had. Um, uh, had become very sick and uh, high temperature and everything else and the decision was made to take her to the hospital to the emergency room and uh, she had done that when i got home from uh, work uh, my wife trudy was getting out of her car with amy in her arms and amy was just screaming at the top of her lungs and uh, i asked well what did the doctor say and she said well the doctor said uh, the good news and bad news and I said, well, well, what is the good news? She said, well, the good news is, is that she has ear infections. <laughs> that didn't seem like good news. No. But the really good news is, is that I have antibiotics here. The doctor says he guarantees we'll knock it out. The pain will be gone. And she said, the bad news is that the uh, antibiotics take 12 hours to work, mm. which meant that what would Amy be doing for the next 12 hours, probably? Crying. Screaming in pain. Yeah. Well, we headed into the house, and she, I headed up with Amy upstairs. Uh, she said dinner was in the oven uh, for the kids. The other three kids, we ate dinner, and uh, they helped me do the dishes. I then helped them for the next few hours doing their homework. And I think about 8.30, I, had, uh, I, I turned on the TV to watch it. I must confess that I had forgotten about Trudy and, and the screaming baby who I didn't hear upstairs. Yeah. It was near nine when apparently the door opened upstairs and I heard the screaming of Amy. And boy, oh, I, I hadn't even done anything to help. Mm. And uh, I could hear that uh, Trudy was coming down the flight of stairs with Amy still screaming. When she got to the foot of the, you know, the landing, and I looked at her, and the tears were just running down her face, and she says, Hal, I just can't take it anymore. She just won't stop crying. And, and so I reached over, and I said, hey, give, give Amy to me. You go to bed, and you get a good night's sleep. If need be, I'll stay up all night with this baby. And, uh, and so it was. I walked with her, and she screamed, and it was a little after midnight when she just went to sleep in my arms. I remember taking her upstairs, and... Uh, I was concerned about putting her in her own bed because uh, it was some distance from our room. And so I do re did recall there was a small portable bassinet. You bring babies home from the hospital. It looked like a little shopping basket, canvas bottom. 
it was unique in that it had four legs on it that were telescoping, so you could pull them down, and if the baby was in it, it'd be slightly elevated off the floor. So I put her in that, and I brought her into our bedroom. We had a king-size bed, and my wife was sleeping on on in the bed on, on her side, and I put Amy near the, at the base of the bed, and I stretched out across the bottom of the bed so my head would be right next to hers, and I went to sleep. We figured it was maybe two and a half hours later that I woke up with an absolute start. I found myself sitting on the edge of the bed wide awake, absolutely wide awake, and terrified. Uh, and uh, I, I, I hadn't had a, a dream. It was, it was just awesome. The feeling of anxiety was overwhelming. And I remember that I turned and then threw myself to my left, landed on my elbow, and then as I did in one scoop, I reached down into the bassinet with my right hand and arm and pulled Amy up out. As I did pull her up out of the bassinet, I, her head caught on one end and her feet on the other, and I could feel she was limp as a rag doll. Mm. I remember I pulled her to my chest and then to my, put my ear on her chest, and she was gone. There was no breathing. And I screamed to Trudy, who was sleeping. I said, something has happened to Amy. And uh, I called the police. We didn't have 911 back then, but they just come out with the princess telephone. There was a phone that had an illuminated dial. I'd written the police number there, right on the face of the dial. Trudy pounded in, you know, the the, uh, the number. Uh, and I, apparently they answered on the first ring. And I heard her say, something has happened to our baby. And uh, the person at the other end told him, you know, you you get downstairs. Well, you just so happen to have had a police car in your block. Call in, and we'll have them stop. They'll probably be at your front door before you get down. Uh, she jumped out of bed, grabbing her bathrobe. I remember following her out of the room. I couldn't bring her myself to tell her that I knew what I knew about Amy, and I... Uh, I literally followed her down the stairs in the darkness. Uh, I could see the bright light in the street, the top half over the front door, and uh, and I could see Trudy's bathrobe flowing out behind her, and she grabbed the door and she opened it. And when she did, I could look down and I could see that there was a figure of a man, it was a policeman, a patrolman coming up across the lawn. The, the driver in the car, his partner, had his spotlight trained on his back. When they got to the door, he pulled the door open. He grabbed Amy out of my arm and headed down to the car. Trudy followed him, and uh, there was no conversation. I just knew that with three children at home, I would be staying there. Well, the door slammed, and I fainted mm. and uh, fell back on the stairs and struck my head. I, I don't know how long I was unconscious, but I do remember waking to the sound of a phone. And I tried to move towards the sound of the phone, but banged into the railing of the stairs, you know, and I couldn't get through. So I got on the floor and crawled on the floor to where the phone, beneath the phone on the wall, I reached up and grabbed the phone, pulled it off. And when I put it to my ear, I could hear it was it was Trudy and there was a screaming baby in the background. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was my Amy. Oh, wow. We thought about that many times in the in the months that followed. What had happened that night? What had I heard that night? Uh, or and so we finally decided it was not that what I had heard, but what I hadn't heard. Mm. And and so the question is, what do you mean what you hadn't heard? I hadn't heard her breathing. 
Uh, most of us assume that you can't hear people breathing, but we do. It's that part of your brain that filters out sounds that are not important, uh, the RAS. But information of importance instantly gets through to your brain. And so even as I slept that night, uh, uh, my brain was listening for her breathing, and when it stopped, I was instantly awake. Someone asked me, well, why didn't Trudy wake up? And I think maybe the answer was simple. I told Trudy as she headed up the stairs that earlier that evening, I said, you go to bed, you get a good night's sleep, if need be, I'll stay up all night with Amy. And so it was. The, um, the, she had gone to sleep, and I assume just turned her RAS off, and that was my job to perform. It's a, it was just a remarkable experience of that part of your brain and, and how it uh, literally saved a life. Actually, what I think we happened, we figured it out, that that night it was 10 below zero out. When I came down the flight of stairs with Amy, her little body soaked with perspiration, just limp as a rag doll. I, when that patrolman opened the door, the wind grabbed the, the storm door, pushed it back against the hinge. He grabbed Amy out of my arms and brought that wet, soaking baby, you know, from perspiration into that 10 below blast of air. Her little body spasmed from the cold and she began to breathe. Unbelievable. It was a miracle. Wow. You know, it's funny how I've heard people ask you when you've told that story, you know, how can you hear the absence of sound? And I always love your answer. Tell me the analogy yeah. that you use. <laughs> yes, right. and I give this to you. Uh, the next time you're in a commercial airline flight, mm-hmm. go to sleep. Go to sleep soundly, and then let the engine stop all at once. And notice how fast you wake up. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I never experienced that. <laughs> it's instantaneous. <laughs> but I know what you're talking about. Even when I fly in an airplane, I, when I'm drowsy, I can actually hear sort of the cutting out of extraneous noise as I'm falling asleep, mm-hmm. like the unimportant noise is, is, is fading out. Yes. Very interesting. Very interesting. The brain is fascinating, isn't it? It really is. And you... Yeah. you you, you two bring that fascination out in this book. It's really quite an incredible book. I really am enjoying reading it. I didn't have time to finish it before our interview, but I am definitely about halfway through. Well, I'm glad you're reading it. That's good. You know, and one of the things that Hal and I have talked about, um, actually this kind of goes to how we became Baha'is. Well, Hal can start. Go ahead. Well, we... Once, you know, I had done this program for, for a large corporation, had uh, taken more than 10,000 people through this particular Pathways program, which is the book is based on. And something was missing in my life. I, we were married, we were doing work, but I wasn't doing the Pathways program anymore. And, uh, and I had created the program to give it to people so that they can make the most of their life. I was missing being able to be of service to other people. And, uh, I missed that uh, desperately, and so we decided, why don't we just begin to go to public libraries and ask for, you know, four nights, eight hours of time, uh, and teach this class to people. It would be free. Anybody could come if they wanted and stay as long as they liked. And so that brought us to putting on a program five years, almost five and a half years ago, here in, in Swickley. And at that gathering, there were a, there were a couple present, uh, and their name was uh, Farah and Farid Samandari. Uh, they were part of the people who'd come, and as the program, you know, had breaks every hour, they would come forward and chat with us. And I must tell you, 
that I had never met to that point in my life people who I found so attractive, attractive in the sense that I looked forward to them coming forward to share their thoughts. And uh, it was just a very meaningful experience. I never met people like that. They had a quality about them that was most different than almost anyone else that had ever come up to me. Can you describe what that was? The, the feeling was of one in the hand, almost in the, in the sense that they seemed to know me. I think that they were enthusiastic and they were respectful and they also were resonating with us as people. It wasn't mm. just the material. Mm-hmm. It was some weeks course it ended and uh, one of the part of the course there was a survey instrument they completed there was a set of research questions at the end they didn't have to complete and apparently Sharon had promised to send something to Farid and needed his email address or something so we realized that they had completed the research portion of it which most people didn't complete and one of the lines asked you about your religion and Sharon, listen to this, Hal. She says, uh, Farid says that he is a Baha'i. And his wife, Far says she's a devout Baha'i. <laughs> now, I'm 68 years old at the time, and I am saying to my, what is a Baha'i? I have, I've made a life, my life's interest has been involved in world religions. I've been searching and searching for one that would match my values and principles, and I hadn't found it in any of them. And so I was not satisfied with that. I went looking for other research. We have lots and lots of books, and I found two encyclopedic texts that both of them had sections on the Baha'i faith. One of them was much longer than the other. I read the first one, and I picked up the second volume, and I was heading downstairs. My office is directly above Sharon's office in her home. And I was heading downstairs. I was reading out of the second volume. And as I was reading, I shouted to Sharon. I said, guess what, Sharon? We're behind. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to move that very quickly, so I got on the Internet and looked up behind, and sure enough, I found a place I could enter my um, zip code, and soon enough, I, there was some contact information and an email from a local Baha'i a physician in the town. He said that they were going to be having a party at his home for somebody called Baha'u'llah who had a birthday, <laughs> and that we were invited. He thought there'd be 50 or 60 people there, but there'd be plenty of room for us, and so we headed off and arrived there. And, of course, we had never had that kind of greeting. People were really glad to see us, <laughs> uh, interested in us as humans. But needless to say, at this point, neither Farah nor Farid knew that we were there. We didn't uh-huh. contact them. Uh-huh. They actually arrived a little bit later. <laughs> and then, of course, they recognized us across the room. That was that was how many years ago now, there? Uh, almost exactly five years ago. Five oh, years wow. ago. And it took us a a few months. We went to a lot of Baha'i gatherings and functions and Mm -hmm. did a lot of... People were wonderful to us. Yeah. Read a lot of books. Yeah. Yeah. So you both had an immediate positive reaction to discovering the Baha'i faith. Oh, absolutely. Actually, the beginnings of what I... When I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, I found the kind of, when people got to know each other, there was absolutely no distinction between races. There was nothing nothing that had to do that separated you by way of your religion. They were people who accepted people who, by the world at that point in their lives, would find unacceptable. Mm -hmm. It was the most acceptive environment I'd ever been in until I got to the to become a Baha'i or go to Baha'i gatherings, where I felt the same kind of wonderful ease about being accepted for who I was just as a human being. Mm. And how about you, Sharon? 
Well, Hal was readier sooner than I was. Mm-hmm. But my moment came, I wanted to do a lot of reading, and people were very good about that and brought me things and, and so forth. And then I remember very well the moment I actually decided, and it was uh, Kendall Williams was a delightful Baha'i here, is no longer in our town, but he brought me the compilation on consultation. And he said, I have a feeling that you will really like this. Consultation, as I now know it in the Baha'i way of talking, is uh, something that in my own way I had been trying to learn and teach people for my whole adult life. The principles, as Baha'u'llah describes consultation, are so profound to me. So I, I was reading this compilation, and I found, literally, I can't even talk about it now without getting choked up. I just found tears going down my face. It was so powerful that I really, I think, got the, the hugeness of the administrative order that's part of the Baha'i faith and consultation, which is at its heart. Hmm. And for me, that was, uh, I don't know, that was a turning point. And I said, I think maybe I'm ready to join, yeah. and we did then together. Now, let's tie that back, Sharon, to when you sort of left the church many yes. years ago because of the the way things went down. Yes. What do you see a significance in the fact that, I mean, did you try a religion between that time and the Baha'i We did, thing. actually. Yeah. We, we actually joined the Unitarian Church in uh, Illinois for a while mm-hmm. and liked it in lots of ways, but the people weren't terribly friendly to us. The ideas we liked and a lot of it we liked, but we didn't find a community there. Hmm. And part of what I wanted was a community. Yeah. Um, I might add that we thought it was really neat when we joined. They gave us a big badge with our name on it, And when you walked in the front door on Sunday, you would grab your badge and put it on your lapel. And we did that and stood there, and nobody ever talked to us. Mm. Well, that's Mm. not quite true, but it was was (laughs) not the sense of community that we got very quickly in this community, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm. And so so I think, yes, to tie it back to my own yearnings, there was something about the way the Baha'i Church is organized Mm -hmm. that's different from organized religions with clergy, I guess, that Mm. spoke to me very deeply. Mm. You know, I'm I'm interested in issues of governance and all of that. So that that is, it's interesting that that, for me, was a piece of the Baha'i faith that always I see as quite unique and so timely for today. Mm -hmm. Well, Hal and Sharon, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's been fun. Thank you for asking us. (laughs) Thank you, Warren, for inviting us. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Hal Williamson and Sharon Eakes, authors of the book Liberating Greatness, The Whole Brain Guide to an Extraordinary Life. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to visit the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
The day he left her, she couldn't speak. Stared out the window the better part of a week. She'd lived her life through him for such a long time. When she looked inside herself, she wasn't sure what she'd find. She had to open the door a little wider now. She had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow. She walked into the fire, alone and scared stiff. Now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift. Little Jamie's body has never worked right. He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night. His parents get weary and his parents get worn. Still, they always bless the day that little Jamie was born. He opens the door a little wider now, lifts them up a little higher somehow. It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift, but his folks know life with James is just a strangely wrapped gift. What is it that we're really made of? How else will we ever know? Till the hand puts us. Fire, do we burn or do we On my doorstep, looks sad and forlorn. The wrapping paper's faded; it's all tattered and torn. For a moment, I wonder what on earth it might be. Till I see the tag and realize it's made out to me. It's gonna open the door a little wider now. Lift me up a little higher somehow. I used to run like the blazes. Now I get the drift. Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped gift. Someone who loves me. Someone who really, really. Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped gift. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.